So Paul said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive to, all to get together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your gospel. Lord, we pray that as Ryan comes up this morning to, to teach us uh, what your word says about the value and the importance of work and calling, and Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we thank you for your spirit and for your love, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do this series that we kind of keep on a drip at New City called Gospel Ethics, uh, which is basically a catch-all for things that we just sense are really important that we need to be hitting as a church. And one of the things that we haven't really hit uh, explicitly in our preaching is just what God thinks about our work and our vocational calling. And as it's, you know, 70%, 80% of our waking hours that we're spending doing work, we just thought it was really important to address that together. I'll never forget that night in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. I was uh, a 17-year-old young man, and I was sitting uh, on my terribly uncomfortable futon sofa that I had traded in from my bed. Anybody else? Dude, that was a terrible idea, but I had one of those uh, growing up, and I was sitting on it, and I had my Bible, my first Bible I ever had, propped open next to me. I had been a Christian for about a year or two and was learning to read the Bible. My mom kind of busted into my room one night, and, and uh, she looked at me in the eyes, and she said, Ryan, I just noticed that there's something different about you. You used to be so angry. You used to, get, used to rage inside, but now you're different. I don't know what it is. She'd been taking me to church for a little bit and dropping me off, and, and I had told her that I thought really God was doing something in my life. And so that night, I shared the few passages of Scripture that I knew, and uh, about a week later, uh, she was talking to one of my friend's parents, and, and, and uh, he informed me that I had uh, uh, accidentally led my mom to Christ. Uh, and it was this beautiful time, right? I mean, I didn't know what to do, but the great news about it is the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. Amen? And so, you know, I had a part, had a hand in uh, sharing the gospel with my mom. And my mom's life, I got, I got to watch her story absolutely turn upside down for the sake of Jesus. I've never seen someone transformed so quickly and so vibrantly in a community other than my mom. And as I watched uh, that happen, um, some of her new Christian friends over the next few months informed her of some devastating news. So on one hand, you've got my mom growing in the Lord like wildfire. On the other hand, you've got her vocational life and her friend's say this, if she was going to be a Christian, she was going to have to change her job. See, my mom had worked at a distillery in Frankfort, Kentucky for about 20 years at that time. She had influence. 
She had meaningful work, yet to her friends it seemed to be Jesus or her job. And it was devastating news. So I watched my mother consult with others, consult with me. I didn't have a clue what to, how to answer. And read her Bible only to discover that such wisdom was not in the Bible for her. It could have been that God may have led her to that reality. That could have been the case. The Holy Spirit had done that, but it certainly wasn't explicit. She didn't need to be compelled to leave that job any more than a, than a bread man might be compelled to leave his job because gluttony exists in the world. And for her, it was, this it was this terrible time in her life where it seemed to reveal something about the nature of the church and our faith. And it's this, is that somehow Sunday is uh, inexplicably disconnected from Monday. And it breaks my heart to think that, that most of us in this room might spend 75% of our waking hours thinking that God is not interested in our work. That he's only interested in the benefits of our work. But what I'm beginning to see as I discover the scriptures and I share life with you is that God is incredibly interested in what you do Monday to Friday or whatever your vocational life looks like. There, and there's been hundreds of years of brokenness and distortion around the idea and the validity of your work. And we want to know at the bottom of our heart that the 40 to 60 hours that we spend a week matter eternally, don't we? We want to know that. We want to know that God is interested in those moments of our lives well. I mean, what if it was possible for us as Christians to feel God's pleasure on our work and to value the inherent dignity of all human work? And you're getting the picture of where I want to go with us today. And, and it's this, this, this big idea right here, that Jesus is tremendously interested in our work because he calls us to walk out his work's through our work. So here's where I want to go, kind of three big points that I want to talk about today. And I'll, I'll just tell you where I'm going and then we'll go where we're going. The first one is this, God is tremendously interested in and involved with our work. That's number one. Number two, God's calling on our lives is, is to Jesus and to, and to work uh, and through work for the sake of the world. That's number two. Number three, God's specific callings on our lives are discovered over time. Let's dig in. God is tremendously interested in and involved with our work. Let's, let's turn to none other than Genesis chapter 2 to, to start in the beginning where time began. Genesis 2.15, I'll flip over to Genesis 3 as well. Here's what the scriptures say. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is what he was created to do, man and woman, to Work the garden and to keep it. Genesis 3.17, you'll notice there was, there was some terrible things that happened in, 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 within between that when sin entered the world. And so what you'll notice from Genesis 3 is the specific consequence toward humanity, specifically men, and how we relate to work. And it's a patriarchal society, so, so men were typically the ones working outside of the home. But now in our culture today, this, this really applies to everyone. We feel it all over the place. Genesis 3, here's the consequence because of how sin entered the world. And, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, underline that, in pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The consequence of this sin that's entered the world is that all work will be incredibly painful, frustrating, and difficult. Miroslav Boff is a theologian. He says this, Together Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 affirm that the inescapable reality of human sin makes work unavoidably an ambiguous reality. And here's kind of the two ditches he talks about. It is both a noble expression of human creation, and it is a painful testimony to human estrangement from God. And and one, as 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 a noble expression, it has the power to make us feel truly alive. Have you ever had a moment when you're working, when you're at your work and you feel, man, God, you created me to do this. It could be woodworking in your shop. It could be crunching numbers at the office. Anything in between where you feel truly alive, you are fitted for this. But on the other side of it, it has this testimony of human estrangement from God. We feel that something is deeply broken in how we relate to our work. So the other ditch is that it has the power to make us question our worth and purpose in this world, unlike anything else. And so that's the predicament that we walk into every single time that we engage with work in this world. And, and as we read Genesis 2, we see that God created good work for us to do, that we are wired for meaningful work in this world, and it's the reason that the kingdom of God starts in a garden and it ends in a city, because we were created to cultivate the raw materials of this world, to have dominion over the earth, or the, 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 the raw matter of this world. And every, literally every, almost every profession on the face of the planet involves this cultivation of God's creation. Whether you're a teacher or a homemaker or a CEO, we all play a part in that, building things. Yet because of sin's power in the world, we feel this tension of the God-given satisfaction of knowing that we've committed our life to work Good work, no matter what. And, and yet, what, why do we still feel so unsatisfied and broken in the work that we do? Sometimes it, f- it feels bad. We have no idea what we're doing. It's tedious. It's monotonous. It's frustrating. And we forget that the Lord is interested in meeting us in the middle of that pain. In fact, God's grace came to us in the midst of the pain. That's when Jesus showed up. It's when God's grace was extended to us in the midst of that pain. It's why we can spend most of our lives longing for retirement, hoping that in that place we may finally feel what God has intended for us all along, only to get there and to not find God's call on our life, and even in that place. I've got someone that is tremendously close to me in my family now that's recently newly retired, and he's struggling to make sense of life right now. Because we're tempted in our brokenness to, to, to relate to work like this. We just work, 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 and we rest, 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 rest. Instead of having this relationship with work where it's work and rest as we go about God's meaningful work in this world. And we think our work is the problem, but what actually is the problem is our understanding of calling and how that plays out through our work. So that's the tension that we're, that we're kind of feeling each day. Each day that we go into the office, each day that we go about our work, we feel this tension of am I measuring up or am I making this thing God? Why do I not feel pleasure in my work? Maybe I should, you know, put out the resume now. I, I don't know. We just feel these tensions. And sometimes you need to do those things. 
But most of the time, we need to pursue what God has right in front of us. So secondly, let's look at this. We're going to get into the Ephesians 2 passage here. God's calling on our life is to Jesus and through work for the sake of the world. So to Jesus and through work for the sake of the world. So let me remind you of Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verses 4 through 10 here. BJ read this for us. He says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And he, and he tells us how that's possible, that relationship with God. How, how do dead people, people that are not able to make a decision for themselves, receive life? How, do, how are they sprung forth to life? Well, he says it's, it's because of grace through faith. And he says, this is not your own doing, but it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. Now, that's important. We can't overlook that. God calls us and comes to us. He meets us. That's the first calling. And without that calling, no other calling in your life will ever make sense. It'll never be enough. It'll never satisfy you the way that God has intended you to be satisfied in this world. Notice how he circles back to this idea of work after this in verse 10. Now he says this, for we are his workmanship. Now in the Greek that literally means like it's the same word that we get poem from, poema. We are his workmanship, we are his story, we are his narrative. He's doing something through us in this world. Created in Christ Jesus for good work. So we were created but we were recreated in Christ Jesus. For good works. God has created you for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I think we're tempted to have this dualistic posture when we think about our work. That somehow when we read Ephesians 2.10, we love it and it's great, but it applies to the hour and a half or maybe hour and 45 minutes today that you spend on Sunday morning worshiping God corporately. Somehow we think that that's the good works that God had in mind. That, that maybe those good works would not play out Monday to Friday. But Jesus is tremendously interested in playing out his good works in your vocational calling. He's so interested in it. Now, so what we see in this passage is you see it like a primary call and then you see secondary callings is the way we're going to look at this. Jesus calls us and he makes us alive so that we can walk in these good works that he's created us for. You know, you know why he created us for these good works? Because we were created to, to uh, cultivate the garden, to cultivate the earth. He didn't save us just to wait for him to return. He saved us to be about his kingdom-building business as we wait for him and long for him to come more fully into our own lives. These good works are evidences for the world to see that God is good. And he invites us into that the same way he did in the garden. I love what Abraham Kuyper says, a Canadian theologian. He says this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In other words, there's nothing in your life that Jesus Christ does not want to reign supremely over. Especially the way that you view work and the way that you walk it out. And as your pastor I truly believe that God's expression and call in your work is a beautiful thing. 
And I think it is an opportunity for us to show Jesus Christ as more beautiful than ever before. And I'm not just talking about in our character, in the way that we approach our work. That's one side of it. But even in the fact that your work has meaning in this world. I could probably count on one hand jobs that don't have redemptive qualities in this world. What if you felt God's pleasure on your life as you worked, as you, you designed CAD drawings as an architect or... Or you made schedules for your children to go to different sports and run around with them and help them develop and flourish in this life. Or as you served tables and invited people, extended the table of Jesus to others through the work that you do. What if you felt and saw God's pleasure even in the middle of the pain through that? All of a sudden we would see what Jesus prayed for us in John 17 when, when he says, I am sending them into the world as I have been sent into the world. I'm sending them out. What if this was a launch pad for our week to make God known in everything that we do? What if that is how we saw Sundays when we gather together as the family of God? Let me, let me illustrate it further in Exodus chapter 31. I'm going to read this for you. It's kind of an obscure passage. But this, this kind of primary and secondary calling in our work is played out beautifully here in uh, Exodus 31, 1 through 6. Let me read it to you. This is the, for context, this is the Israelites, they're, they're in the wilderness, they've just been delivered uh, from Egyptian slavery, and God comes and he meets them, and he says this, the Lord said to Moses, see I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the uh, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, listen to this right here, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge in all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oilab, the son of Ashimash Mac. <laughs> I need Megan up here. I usually make her pronounce the hard stuff. The tribe of Dan. And I have given him all and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Now what we see here is God's interest in the cultivation of work in this world. And not only God's interest, God's empowerment of our work in this world. So let's look at the primary calling here. So this, notice that he is, Bezalel is filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, wait, Ryan, I thought the Holy Spirit didn't, didn't come in, until Acts chapter 2. No, the Holy Spirit has always existed. He's the triune God. He's the third person of the Trinity. God gets to choose when he fills someone with his spirit. He, he filled Bezalel with the Holy Spirit in order to empower him to do the work that he called him to do in this world. Isn't that incredible? So God's work is left undone in the wilderness, and God has delivered them from Egypt, but they're still in the wilderness. And one way God could have done this is, is to build a, a, a palace in the wilderness and he kind of could have played a cosmic game of hide and seek with them and let them go and find it, right? But no, he chose to use his people as he always has to build his kingdom. He always has. And he does this with Bezalel. And, and it's this extraordinary spiritual endeavor. Not because it was the tabernacle, but because of God's call on Bezalel's life. Because he wanted to express his empowerment of the Holy Spirit through his work in the world. We, we often use the word vocation to, to talk about our job, but you know that the origin 
of the word vocation is really about calling. Voca, vocals, to call. That's really about what, what this is about. Is a, a vocation is a calling on your life. And, and, and Tim Keller says it like this in, in his work, in his work uh, Every Good Endeavor. He says this, a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. So let's pause right there. He's saying this, is that what you do Monday to Friday can only be a calling if God calls you to do it. But if you just do it for yourself, it's just a disposable job. It's just something that you can take it or you leave it as long as they give you the paycheck. Now you've seen this play out in your life. Because when you have a calling on your life, you're able to endure in a way that you wouldn't if you just had a job. You would hit the eject button on it. So, so he says this, it can only become a calling on your life if God calls you to do it. How many times have we invited God into our vocational relationship with our work? Have we done that before? And he says, and so our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. Are you there today? Are you in a place where your work is just crushing you? Could it be that potentially some of us are trying to take this secondary calling and make it our primary calling to God? We're trying to squeeze life out of something that we'll never be able to get life from. The order of how you view calling determines everything. For if it wasn't God meeting us in the death of our sin, the trespasses, we couldn't walk in these good works that he's created for us. We're only able to feel his pleasure and to walk through these good works that he's created for us because of the grace of God on our lives. It's the only way that we can find meaning and seeming meaning, meaningless tasks, redundant things that we, that we put our hands to each day. So we see in Bezalel's life in Exodus 31, these secondary callings, these things that we don't think that God's interested in, that he's tremendously interested in. The words ability, intelligence, and knowledge all come from God's gifting and his filling of the Spirit on Bezalel's life for the task at hand. So all along, think about this, God was gifting and using and equipping Bezalel through his work even when he was in Egypt for the work that he was calling him to do. Even when he was in bondage, even when he was in slavery, the things that he put his hand to, whether they were making bricks or whatever he was doing, God was going to use, he was gifting, he was sovereign over Bezalel's life, even in the painful years. I have to imagine that Bezalel never thought that he would get called up for that task, never be empowered to do that by God's hand. Probably seemed impossible for them to even be free when he put his hand to that. But that faithful presence of staying at the work God calls you to do, God uses in the future. You see, what we want is, uh, straight out of high school, we want the temple task, right? We want to be called up to the big leagues as soon as we get our first job. We want to be a manager as soon as we, you know, get out of college and, and get that degree from Georgia Tech. No offense. You know, we, we think we have this sense of entitlement. And sometimes that happens and, and it's beautiful. Sometimes that happens and it's awful. And sometimes God puts us on the slow road in our work, doesn't he? We want the temple task first, but, but what would it look like instead to wake up every single morning 
and love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love the work that He calls us to do that's right in front of us, no matter how good or challenging or how many thorns and thistles we experience in it. Because calling works as we discover it through a relationship with Jesus. It's not something we invent in our minds. It's not how calling works. Frederick Buechner says it like this. He says, the place God calls you to, it's two parts here, is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now, I don't know a lot of uh, computer programmers that go to work on Monday morning and think, man, I'm really going to meet God's deep hunger in the world today through, through, through these algorithms I'm kind of putting together here. But could we? I mean, is the work that we're doing meaningful in the world? Is it helping to cultivate more robust businesses who are able to serve people more substantially in the world? Do we have a view of that in God's world? We don't know a ton about Bezalel, but what we do know is that God was interested in his craft of construction. He didn't just choose some mediocre guy. He didn't, instead, he was empowering this guy all along to be excellent at the work. And, and i gotta, I got to imagine that there were probably some tasks that Bezalel did that were kind of below his, uh, his quality level. And he probably was tempted to say, you know what? Nah, this ain't the kind of work I'm going to do. But when you're in slavery, guess what? you got to do it anyway. And so the thing is, is that God called him up for that time, and he was gifting him through that time, but he didn't see it in the moment. He didn't see the calling in the moment. He knew that he was called to serve God with his craft, but he didn't know how it would play out. Now, here's the honest truth. There are rare cases, it seems, where calling perfectly lines up with your job. Let me say it again. There are rare cases when it seems that calling perfectly lines up with your job. Most of us experience some sense of our calling playing out in maybe a sliver of our job most of the time. And we're, we're tempted in those moments to get into this state of despair because the grass sure seems greener on the other side. For instance, I have many friends that are artists, some of you in this room, and it is incredibly difficult to earn a living wage as an artist. Amen, artists? It's, it's nearly impossible. But please, for the sake of God's expression of beauty in the world, do not give up your calling just because your paycheck doesn't, isn't made by that. Don't give it up. The world needs you. Some of you are flipping burgers and you're, you're doing things, but you're incredibly gifted artists. We need you. You need to be encouraged that God is interested in that work, even if it won't pay the bills fully for you. We need you. There are others of you that experience the same thing. You've got all these TPS reports to do. <laughs> if you've seen Office Space before, you've got all these TPS reports to do, and your work seems meaningless, but you really love to manage people. You love, you're in it for the people. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Stay in it. Those people need you. Lastly, I want to land the plane with this. God's specific callings plural, on our lives are discovered over time. Uh, a friend of mine named uh, Morgan, <clears throat> Morgan uh, went to school at Anderson University, and um, he discovered this hack in his co college dorm room uh, that would provide literally four years of entertainment for he and his roommates. The hack, 
transfer calling. All right, so evidently there was some kind of brokenness with the, with the, with the transfer, you know, calling the phone system at the university. And so here's what they could do, literally. They could, they could pick up the phone and call another dorm room or another number. They would answer. They could call someone else. They would answer. And then they could patch those two together and listen to the conversation. So they would do things like, you know, they would have Pizza Hut, call the Chinese restaurant in town, and they would just listen to the ensuing confusion that happened. But his favorite story that he would tell me about, and I, I shared a, an office with Morgan for years, he, would, he just had so many great stories. I don't know if you know anybody like that. I, just, I would like to just listen to his stories. He told me this story about these two strangers that, that, uh, that they introduced to each other through transfer calling. Now, it was a guy and it was a girl, and... Um, Funny thing is, is the same thing would happen for, for months on end. The same thing would happen every night when they would patch them together. <laughs> is that the, uh, the, the, the guy would answer the phone. The girl would answer the phone. The girl would just be livid. You know, Johnny, why do you keep calling me? And get this, the guy would just sit there and take it. He wouldn't even tell her that he never called her. You know, he would just sit there and take it. And then for 30 minutes, they'd go back and forth uh, this and that, and then she would uh, conclude the call by calling uh, him uh, her little hostess cupcake. <laughs> the, the point of it is this, though. There is no calling without a caller. Now, that couple, they actually ended up getting together. I don't know if they're married today, but they definitely dated for a while. They couldn't figure out that, like, someone else had set them up. Someone else had called them. So it's, it's kind of crazy to think about, right? But kind of getting serious on us here, when you think about calling in your life, what God has called you to do. He's first called you to himself through Jesus, done all the work for you. Faith is what's required. Now he wants you to walk out that work through your good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. Now what's required in walking out that calling is a relationship. And guess what? Relationships evolve. They take time, don't they? They take time. We don't get depth and intimacy. You know, I think about our own marriage, how many misunderstandings we had early on. I, I, you know, it's just difficult early on when you're married, but, you know, it gets sweeter with time. You get on the same page more with time. It's the same way with God. There is no calling without a caller. Even Jesus, think about it this way, even Jesus had to discover his calling. You know, there had to be moments in Jesus' life where he wondered, what in the world am I doing building tables and chairs? I'm a son of God. You know what I mean? I mean, think about it like this. In Luke chapter 1, Jesus' call on his life started before he was born. Mary was met by an angel, and, and he said, don't be afraid. And I can imagine she was probably still a little bit afraid. <laughs> angel shows up to her, says uh, she's going to conceive a child, and she's a virgin. I mean, that's kinda, that would kind of freak me out a little bit. Um, but he, he gives him this promise that he'll be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. What a promise to a teenage, soon-to-be mother, right? What a promise. And the scriptures say in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, that Mary treasured these things up in her heart. She took that promise, and she took it to the bank, and she treasured it up. So Jesus is born at age 12. We don't have a lot of information about Jesus' childhood, but we do have this one instance when he's 12, and it comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 46 through 52, and here's what the scriptures say. Well, i got to set this up. Okay, so they lost Jesus for a day. Could you imagine losing your kid for a day? I mean, I like 30 seconds in the grocery store, and I'm flipping out, right? I'm ready to call 911. 
and then I find, find them all in the cereal aisle or whatever, you know. So after, you know, after three days, they found Jesus in the temple. So they, they were headed back home from the festival. They come back to Jerusalem. And listen to what Jesus is doing. Pay, pay attention to what he's doing. Sitting among the teachers, listening to the teachers, and asking the teachers questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, boy, where you been? Basically, right? Son, why have you treated us so? You know, a little more put together than my Kentuckyism there. But behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. They were freaking out about what was happening there. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Come on, Mom, don't you remember what the angel said? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? How, how else am I going to be the savior of the world unless I'm in my father's house, Mom? And they did not understand that saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, just like she did before. This, this passage has actually blown my mind this week to think about how Jesus had to work out his call as the Savior of the world. He's a teacher, he's a rabbi. He's fully God, but we forget that he's fully man, that he was tempted in every single way. And so what we see Jesus doing is sitting with the teachers. He just wants to be around them. He wants to be like them. Listening to the teachers, what do they have to say? How do they interpret God's word? Asking them questions. Trying to figure his way through this role as a, as a rabbi. And he had to figure it out. And, and his, his, his parents are a little nearsighted as they think about it. And, and he reminds them of his call. Then you know I had to be about my father's business? You knew this about me, mom. I had to be about it. And then you see Jesus at age 30. The beginning of his ministry. So in between 12 and 30 or whatever, he's been working as a carpenter with his dad, Joseph. That's what we see in uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so he had this calling on his life, but he is building tables and chairs for a living. Think about that. 18 years, he's building tables and chairs. I'm sure God wasn't interested in that. Why don't we just cut those out of the Bible? Let's just put in virgin birth, temple, boom. Let's get to ministry, right? No, those years mattered too. So when he's, he comes up to be baptized by his cousin John, when he kind of introduces his public ministry there, and while he could have been tempted to think about why he shouldn't be doing carpentry all those years, here's what we see. We see for the first time, maybe in his life, that what he's been feeling all along in his heart is his call. He hears his father declare over him. Listen to it. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Here's what it said. You are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, all those years that you were swinging a hammer, you were my beloved son. When you stayed in Jerusalem, when your parents were headed back home to Nazareth, you were my beloved son. When you were asking those questions to those rabbis and when you were searching and trying to figure out what in the world I called you to do, you were my beloved son. See, Jesus' call on his life 
Never changed. But his job did. We see this happen again at the Mount of Transfiguration where what, Jesus, what God has declared over Jesus' life is then declared to his disciples. Mount of Transfiguration, same promise is uttered. They go up on the mountain. You remember Peter does that weird thing where he's like, hey, you want me to build a tent for all of us? And Jesus is like, come on, Peter. And, but then that same bellowing promise comes over his life, and he says this, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he says something else, a charge, listen to him. God was declaring that that promise over Jesus' life was something that all of humanity would have to listen to. And Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because of Jesus' call in his life to be the Savior of the world. I just want you to be encouraged today that no matter where you're at in this process, Jesus has been there with you. No matter how refined your calling in life seems, how monotonous your job may seem, God is so interested in you. If, if where you're at right now seems to be pretty muddy, you're in between jobs, you don't really understand what's going on, sink yourself into that primary call that Jesus has to you. And in my experience, the more you do that, the more the secondary things, the callings that really matter in this world, the good works that God's prepared for you to walk in, become more and more clear. I just want to leave you with, with, with four just quick points on how to discover calling if you're kind of in that no man's land now. And uh, before I say that, I want, to, I want to let you know one of the reasons why I felt led to preach this today was uh, as, a, as, a, as a church, I was really, as a pastor, I was really challenged for our church to connect Sunday to Monday more effectively. And so next week, we, we've taken an idea from a friend of mine, Tom Nelson, who's written books and uh, directs an organization called Made to Flourish, which helps connect people to their vocational callings and show that they matter in the world. And he had this idea in his own church called This Time Tomorrow. And This Time Tomorrow is this idea is that we'll bring up people that have different types of vocational callings in a pretty frequent manner, maybe once a month at New City, once every six weeks, and we'll just interview them quickly. And you as a church will get to hear about other people's vocational callings, their Monday to Friday life where they get to walk out God's good works, and we'll get to pray for each other. And it'll be this beautiful time where we can grow more deeply in how Jesus is sending us out to the world through our vocations. And so I just want to let you know that that's going to be coming, and some of you will be asked to be up here with us, and, and we'll be interested in hearing what you have to say. So the first thing is this about discovering calling. The question that we need to be asking is this, how can I be faithfully present in the work that's right in front of me now? So many times we want to be faithfully present on down the road, but we don't want to be present right now. How can I, like Jesus, swing a hammer to the glory of God and the good of the world the same way that I preach the gospel? Whatever it is, David Fitch says this, faithful presence names the reality that God is present in the world and that he uses a people faithful to make his concrete and real mind, to his presence concrete and real amid the, words, the world's struggles and pains. That because God is faithfully present in our lives, that he has called us to himself. And he'll never leave us or forsake us. The way that we work, we work as those who are faithfully present because God is with us. And that changes everything about how we view work and how others perceive how we view our work. For kids, kids, how often has an adult asked you what you want to be when you grow up? I'm guilty of this. I do it. And then I start kind of like labeling my kids, okay, this one, okay, this one's going to be the one that, uh, you know, my retirement depends on over here, and this one's going to be the one I'm going to live with. I've seen how he, I don't know. And so, you know, you kind of, you kind of, you kind of think through that, and we're, we're tempted because of this, the nature of our culture, which is we try to find our, 
our, our calling in our work. We try to find our identity in our work. Because of that, we push everything toward the right job. And then it crushes us when we don't find it because we had it in the wrong place altogether. I think we do this with our kids even at a young age when we say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Instead, kids, what if when somebody asks you that, you could, you could really shock them next time and you could say, you know, I'm only nine years old, so I'm not sure where God's going to be leading me. But whatever I do, I want to know that God's called me to it. What if you approached it that way, kids? Or what adults, parents, covenant partners, what if we helped our kids work out their calling without knowing the destination yet? What would that look like? Same way God does with us. Second thing is this, what human needs burden me? So the key to understanding the secondary calling, is, this is an Oz Guinness thing, by the way. He talks about primary calling, secondary calling. The key to, to understanding secondary calling is this, start with others, not self. Because when you start with self, you end up, as Keller said, with this crushing weight of, I've got to make this thing happen. But your work was never meant to be just for yourself. It's always been for the world to walk out those good works, to cultivate creation. How has God uniquely burdened me to meet the needs of humanity for the common good? Maybe you enjoy leading people. Maybe you enjoy working with your hands to fix broken things. Maybe you enjoy creating programs and software to, to make the world more efficient and to make be able, people be able to communicate more effectively. What if we didn't pick jobs just because of the salary levels? What human needs burden me? What is it that I seem to be drawn to even though other people are drawn to other things? Thirdly, what are my gifts and talents? So you ask yourself this question. How has God uniquely gifted me through my upbringing and experience? Because guess what? Your childhood and your upbringing, your family of origin, all play into the story God is writing through your life. And I would say this, even your vocational calling a lot of times. What comes easy to me that's difficult for others? Also, what are my limits? I mean, you can't be a technology director if your kids still have to set up your iPhone for you. You know what I mean? Like, let's be realistic about this. What, what, what are my gifts? What are my limits? What, what is like, okay, that can be a hobby, but that, I'm not going to make a living with that. You know, that's not going to be my calling there. Fourthly, last one is this. Where does my community suggest that I'm needed? This is the huge one right here. Oftentimes, our calling, vocationally, is noticed by our community before it is noticed by us. That happened for me. I remember setting up in the tech booth when I was a youth pastor uh, at Stones Crossing Church in Indiana, and uh, my friend Morgan, the same guy, said, hey, man, I, I think you're going to plant a church. And I said, no way, no way. Not in a thousand years am I ever going to do that. I would destroy it and destroy myself. And lo and behold, over time, God began to show that that was his calling on my life, vocationally, to do that. Jesus is tremendously interested in your work, church. And my prayer as your pastor is that you would believe that this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the call um, to make disciples in this world. Thank you for the call to work. It's so good to be called to good and meaningful work, Lord. We take it for granted. We have so much freedom, it seems, to choose jobs that it is often paralyzing for us as we think about it. 
Lord, I pray that you would teach us a faithful presence that is, um, that is spirit-driven. I pray like, that we could become even like Bezalel, who senses your spirit's calling on our lives and your pleasure through the things you've gifted us to do. Lord, I pray that we would avoid the temptation of making other people's callings our callings. Comparison, the trap, and the regret that that gives us. Lord, show us hearts that can be faithfully present here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.